we are returning back to the book of Exodus, hence why we had a Bible reading from Exodus. Now, for those who are in the Facebook group, you'll notice that what we had rendered is not the entirety of the passage that we are covering this morning. It was shortened for a couple of reasons. One, because it's a really, really long reading. And if anyone did read the entire thing, would realise it's not the most exciting reading. I don't believe there's anyone here this morning who had no intention of coming to church, saw what the Bible reading was and thought, I've got to be there. That's the one for me. That one's going to be exciting. I want to know what to do with my ox gore somebody, what to do with my slaves. I need to be and not to hear it. Well, you're about to hear it. So while we didn't read the entirety of the passage, um, and sure we're not going to have time to go in detail of all things, which you'll thank me for, um, we will be covering everything from basically Exodus 20, verse 22, so straight after the Ten Commandments we finish on, uh, through to the end of what we had read this morning. Heavenly Father, I am but a, a broken man who has complete confidence in your word, in your character. Nothing by way of my preparation, my suitability, can make this of any worthwhile. But Lord, it is your powerful, life-changing word. And Lord, we pray for your Spirit's work, not only through me as a broken vessel, but to us as a, as a family of, of people who belong to you, that we might hear the very heart of God and the reasons why uh, you have declared these things and why you have caused them to be kept in such a way that we might read and learn from them. And as we look at uh, what seems to be on the surface a, a just a list of um, weird and wonderful commandments and laws, uh, Lord, that we meet, might see something of the character of our mighty God that might increase our affections and our service toward you. Uh, so work in us and change us uh, as we look to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In 13 years and six days, a little bit down the track, I like to think ahead sometimes, our daughter Mella will be able to get her L plates and drive a car. That means saying that she turns three next Saturday. Now, when the kids are almost three and they, she still can't even do lots of things in a very normal sort of sense, you think, the thought of them driving a car and even teaching them to drive a car just seems that little bit too scary, doesn't it? But you know what would be even scarier than the thought of what is now just your little kid eventually driving a motor vehicle? Imagine if they changed the rules. They changed the rules to such a sense they say, here is your road handbook, go home and read it, all you've got to do is pass the theory test, no L plates, no P plates, you just get out and go. If you can show to us you understand what the rules are about driving on the road... You've shown to us you know it, just go and do it. How would that work out, do you reckon? A theory test, no practical experience, no training, just go out and give it a crack. It's not going to go too well. You need to know a lot more than just the road rules. As we look at this passage this morning, as we see a whole pile of many rules, many laws... One thing I wanted to see, and we didn't see it because we didn't read the entirety of the passage, is that it is wrapped around instructions 
to give right and proper worship to God. Because you can look at these lists of things and the, the people who first read them to whom they specifically applied could have looked at this list of things and thought, what a ridiculous list. But just like you don't just get someone to pass a theory test to, so they can go out and drive your car, there is a training, there is a preparation to actually do, carry out the task. And so these things that they're called to do, the very foundation upon which they are built is upon their right worship to God and these things are the expression of a life that is worshipping of God and living in obedience to him. Now many of you have been enjoying the series as we've gone through Exodus, probably right up until the point that you read this passage and you thought, this is going to be the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. And thank you for, for sharing your honesty with me at this point in time. But what do you do with all these strange laws? As I said, we didn't read the whole thing. There's things that deal with slavery and we are going to talk about that. It's important that we do talk about it. And there's all sorts of things you think, these have got no application to me whatsoever. Why do we even preach through it? If you're visiting, let, let it be known we are preaching through the whole book of Exodus. So I didn't just pick this as a favourite passage that I wanted to preach on a particular Sunday. And the simple answer as to what do you do with it is read it in its context. Figure out where does this fit into the overall plan of what God is saying in this book. Because if you just pick it up and read it, you think, I'm a, I'm a Christian, this is a Bible. Okay, I'm not going to dig a pit just in case an animal falls into it and therefore I've got to pay restitution to the person whose animal's fallen into it. Now what we've seen leading up after Israel had been in slavery for 430 years, just as God had promised that he would, all the way back in Genesis to Abraham, that he brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He said, and as he initially promised to Moses, when he was there and met him at the burning bush, he says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and you will worship me again on this mountain. And we're seeing how God brought them through the Red Sea, how he delivered them, how he brought them again to Mount Sinai. And the last time we looked at Exodus, we were looking at the giving of the Ten Commandments. And at the end of that time, we see the general people who have seen and heard the very voice of God, they feared God. And they say to Moses, don't let him speak to us. You can speak to us, but this God, he's, he's too high, he's too mighty. We can't handle it. We need to understand, just like the Ten Commandments, this section, which is called the Book of the Covenant, it was given to this, the extent of being like, I suppose, as they are being established as a nation for the first time, this is to be the, the civil laws of, of the land as they enter into the promised land. So we need to understand that it's given to them as the civil laws, it's given to a people that God has already redeemed, as were the Ten Commandments. They're not like a universal, worldwide set of rules. But in particular, they deal with how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. Remember when Jesus is asked about what was the greatest commandment? Back in Matthew 22, this was his response. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So Jesus, looking back upon the Old Testament scripture, says these two things are the foundations upon which the rest of it, all of it hangs. And when we look at this big number of chapters that we're looking at this morning, 
It would be very easy to go into all the little minor details, but this is the framework that I'm going to, to work upon this morning. This idea that all of it hangs upon this idea of worshipping God and loving your neighbour. And as we see in the content of it, that is a very a broad summary of what we look at. To give you a, a bigger but still very broad structure of the passage, this is roughly how it works. It begins with what is right worship of God, then in between the, the final bracket about what is right worship of God, it talks about how do we relate to one another. As a reminder of saying, this is the foundation, your relationship with God is the foundation and basis upon which you can rightly relate to one another. Right relationship with God is the first and final matter. And so for that reason, we're going to look at these things in that order, beginning with a love for God. To fully love God means also to avoid the appearance of loving something else. Now, if I was to say, I love my wife, Sarah, but at the same time I was pursuing this woman, this woman, this woman, I made sure my fingers wasn't anywhere out there in case it felt awkward for a moment there, (laughs) then you'd think, I don't know about it. Your love for your spouse is more than what you do for them or what you think of them. It's also about what you don't pursue as well. And so as we look at the commands regarding how we to rightly worship God, we see there are both prohibitions, things to avoid, as well as things to be obeyed. To look at some of the things that we're told to be avoided. Remember, they've just been given the Ten Commandments and they feared God. They'd heard his voice, they feared him. We said, we do not want to hear from this God, you speak to us. And probably the fact that they thought, this God is so mighty and so awesome, they could be very tempted to think, let's go with something safer. So it's probably not without surprise, the first thing that are prohibited is not to make other gods, not to make other idols. It's almost a repetition of what's already been said in the first and second commandment of the Ten Commandments. So it begins by saying, don't make them, don't have other gods instead of me, but also do not have other gods as well as having me. Now that all seems pretty straightforward because we've seen it before in the Ten Commandments. It's such an important thing that when it comes down to the concluding verses, it comes back to that point again. Don't have any other gods, don't make other idols. I am your God, I am your God alone. But if you've read through the whole passage, there's a lot of things that are just straight out stated and you think, I wonder why. Why do these things exist? Some of the things, the reasons aren't given. The original audience must have understood why they were given. Some of the things that were prohibited is when you make altars, a good thing, you can't make them out of stones which have been cut. Or you can't make them with stairs, lest when you come up to them that people might see your nakedness. Now that, in a sense, makes a bit of sense that you want to be pure and holy and you don't want to be naked in your acts of worship. But what needs to be understood is a lot of the surrounding nations, the way in which they worship their gods, were very sexual in nature. So there is an intentional act to avoid even the slightest appearance of what is the surrounding religious activities. 
That also helps us make sense of some of the prohibitions in chapter 22 because right in the middle of religious things telling you to avoid, it says, do not lay with an animal. Do not have relationships with an animal. And you think, what's that got on earth to do with religious things? Not only because it's profoundly sick and wrong, but it actually was part of religious practice of some of the surrounding nations. It's interesting that some of those things that are prohibited in chapter 22, verses 18 to 20, every single one of them are saying, don't fall into these other forms of worshipping other gods. And every single one of them, the consequence was the death penalty. To show the, the heightened importance of people who God has brought out of slavery to be his own people, how seriously he takes that they would come before and engage in worship of another. Particularly addressed sorcery, bestiality and sacrifices to another God in those verses. This is the God who's rescued them from slavery. They had no hope there to get out of Egypt, no hope of improving their situation. They didn't deserve the gracious provision that God has given them. He is worthy of all worship. He's worthy to be honoured in every single way. So it makes sense that we're given commands, or the people were given commands, how to love God exclusively and wholeheartedly in worship. When it talked about the building of the altars, it expresses two key sacrifices, a burnt offering, or sometimes called a whole offering, or the fellowship offering. Now, the burnt offering was something that happened on a daily basis. It was something they would do on a daily basis as a reminder that as a sinful people, they do not belong in the presence of God. They had a daily reminder that a death had to take place in order for them to have any opportunity to be living in the presence of an almighty God. In chapter 23, 13, he says, Be careful to do everything I say. Because effectively, what you worship will govern every aspect of your life. If your concept of a worship of God is, I like these ones that he says, these are good, they work with me, they they fit my agenda, but I don't like these ones, so I won't do those, that's not worship. That's just doing what you want to do and just having to agree with God on a few points. Where you genuinely show the worship and worship of the one whom you worship is when you think, because of who he is, because he is so worthy, I delight, I want to be obedient in the very things that do not feel comfortable to me. That's the nature of worship. It's always an extent which there is cost. In the sacrifices, you would, they were to bring the best of their animals into the situation. The very first use of worship in the Bible is when Abraham is told to go sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham says, me and the boy are going up to worship. There are three festivals that we mentioned which we had in our reading that was done this morning. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've already seen this coming through the book of Exodus. That was a reminder and a celebration of God delivering the people from Egypt. It was a feast of unleavened bread as a reminder that they got out and they came out quickly. They didn't have time to bake bread in its proper and normal sense. To be a constant, ongoing reminder of the God who saved them. There was a feast of harvest or the feast of weeks as it sometimes became referred to as. 
It was a celebration of the bringing the first of your, your harvest to God as a way of saying, God, you are the provider of all these things. These things which we have, we bring the first of all of them to you because we acknowledge that all things we have come from you. And thirdly, the Feast of Ingathering, or later called the Feast of Booths, where they celebrated that time of temporary dwellings, where they, where they wandered in the wilderness with God and God provided for them on, on a daily basis. So if you summarise what, how that worked out in terms of a, the feast they were commanded, it was a, a feast put together to remind them of a God who saves and a God who provides them with absolutely every single thing that they need, who gives graciously and who sustains them. He's the source of all they have and it's right to give him thanks. Now this focus on worshipping God is the necessary bookends. It is the means by which all of the commands of how we relate to one another fit together. Quite often we hear this refrain throughout the scriptures. Speaking of God calling the people, setting them apart, he says, be holy as I am holy. Now it's in our worship of God as we see who he is and who his character is, is the only way by which we have any measure of how we are to relate to our neighbours around us in a way that reflects something of his character. So into that second category of loving your neighbour, which is where the majority of the passage fits in, or in terms of the words that are spoken. The term to love your neighbour never just meant the person who lived next door, nor did it mean just purely your fellow Israelites, even though come the New Testament, uh, people had started to um, interpret in that sense. But it meant the idea of intentionally acting for the benefit of whoever is within your midst. So when you look through these instructions, you see it speaks about fellow Hebrews or Israelites, but also speaks about the sojourners, the aliens, for the foreigners travelling through the lands. And it speaks about loving your neighbour in various different ways. And the first one it raises is the difficult one. Loving your slaves. Now we didn't read this portion, and and I didn't avoid it just because slavery is a difficult and hard topic. I've got no intention of skipping over. I think it's important that you speak about it. There's no good, there's nothing helpful avoiding it. There's no good going through the scriptures and just pretending like some bits that don't fit comfortably don't exist there. We need to acknowledge there are some things that don't always sit entirely well with us. You can't read through the reading that we've had, well, the fuller reading that we didn't read, and ignore that there actually was a form of slavery, not commanded by God, but still legislated by God, so permitting it to continue to exist, but redefining it in such a way and redeeming it in such a way. Nor can you read through the passage and not notice the fact that when it talks about particular actions and their consequences, the consequences for doing something towards a free man are far more significant than if they are done towards a slave. There is a, there is a very clear um, and uncomfortable distinction between the value of a free person and a slave. But one thing we do need to remember is our context. Come back there again. These laws were written to the nation of Israel who for 430 years, so everyone who's alive at this point in time, their father, their grandfather and onwards have existed and understood and lived in nothing else other than slavery. Slavery existed. It's all they'd ever known. It's not surprising that it existed. 
Likewise, it needs to be said, the Bible never commands slavery. It never tells someone to go take slaves. What it does is it legislates and redeems and sets safer and wiser boundaries for something that was an existing reality. Now, the question that often gets asked is, if God's a loving God, why didn't he just go, boom, straight away, get rid of it, never have it? Well, no, the answer to that is, that would actually be a really unloving thing. Now, you think, how's that unloving to, to not completely get rid of it? For many people... This was their means by which they lived. It was their income. They needed it in order to have an income to to survive and support their families. If you just said, boom, gone, you would have had so many thousands and thousands of people. No food, no hope. It would have been unloving at that time to remove it in its entirety. But we also need to say there are a couple of things that slavery, when the Bible speaks about it, is not the same as what we think when people use that term. Slavery, as the way the Bible speaks of it, was never racial slavery. It's never about taking someone from another race and considering them lesser and putting them to a, to a task. Matter of fact, if you've read through this particular passage, it only actually speaks about fellow Hebrew slaves. Second thing you need to remember that this slavery was not it was not forced. People were not taken and said, you are going to be my slave against their will. Matter of fact, when you read this whole passage, there are actually laws in this passage that talk about kidnapping people, being in possession of them or selling them. The consequences of that was the death penalty. People were usually in slavery because of the financial needs that they had. It was the only means available to them to pay off a debt which they had. And the third thing, which is slavery was not, it was not permanent. When you read through this passage, it says, you will work in that household for six years. On the seventh year, you are set free. So there are many ways when people say slavery is in the Bible, it is something very different than what people are thinking. To give you one example of how different it is than what people think, read from chapter 21, 5 and 6. There is a law saying if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. There are some people who thought, I love my master, this is good. And we see the way in which um, God redeemed the nature of slavery It was uh, lifting it very much higher than what they'd experienced themselves in the nation of Egypt. But we see throughout all of the commands regarding slavery, God changing it. God actually not wanting things to work out poorly for the people. Like if if a father out of desperation gives his daughter into slavery... If the master to whom she goes to doesn't find that she's doing the job, it says, let her go. Or if a daughter is given to be the wife for for the master's son, it says she gets all of the privileges of being a daughter. See, God is actually turning something that was ugly and evil and actually doing it in such a way that needed to exist but protects and cared for the people. 
It even says that if that son was to take another wife, God legislated ways that she needed to be protected. Even if that son took another wife, he still had to provide for her food, her clothing, and give her all the marriage rights, otherwise let her go free. If a slave was mistreated in the workplace and his eye or his tooth were damaged, he's to be let go free. And we see this continuing redeeming of the nature of servanthood when you get all the way through to the New Testament and Paul speaks about it both in uh, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4. The way Paul speaks of it in Colossians 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So here's a picture of it. At this point in time, it says, yes, they still exist. Treat them as I have treated you. Let my treatment of my people be the standard by which you treat your servants. And if that is carried out faithfully, then that can't be a bad thing. Sadly, as we know, though, in the 19th century, there were Bible passages such as we've just read from Exodus that people used to justify things that were very different than the way in which the Bible had spoken of them. Plus also to to apply them as though they were commands being written to us today that we are to, to obey and keep today. The type of slavery that people think of today when they hear that word never did and never will have a place in the sight of God. Because all people as they are created in the image of God are worthy to be treated with all honour and respect. And that includes honouring and value within their life. There are commands within these passages about taking the life of another person. Remember what James said in James 3.9? It says, Do not curse your brother or sister because he is made in the image of God. That's the reason why we value our people who are all around us is because each of them are made in the image of God. And so there's nothing backwards in the commands given here in Exodus. It says, If you intentionally kill someone, death penalty. Interesting, they also include if you strike a pregnant woman, and because it's already said if you kill someone intentionally, um, the death penalty, so it appears in the way this language, um, it's speaking about the, what happens to the baby as a result. Again, if the baby is to be substantially injured, again, death penalty. If you have an animal which is known to be violent and you do nothing about it and it kills someone, death penalty. God is doing everything to protect the well-being of people and setting laws in place so that people don't abuse them. Where I said there are some clear distinctions that are uncomfortable, if a slave is killed, it just says the person is to be punished. It doesn't actually define the nature of that punishment. Even if you kidnap someone to sell them or to keep them, death penalty. But all harm, anything to do to the detriment to devalue someone created in the image of God is against the very values of God himself. And every time you do something against God's people created in his image, there are consequences to the perpetrator. The guilty is always called to make amends for his actions. If they were to injure someone, not only do they need to make sure they are restored fully to health, but they need to pay the loss of the person's income during that time while they recover. If they damage the eyes or teeth of a slave, to let them go. We're not just talking physical acts either. Every parent's favourite, 21 verse 17, 
If you curse or you dishonor your mother and father, your child shall be put to death. Please tell me that's not every parent's favorite or any parent's favorite. Never in the heat of the moment say, aren't you glad you weren't born under the Old Testament? That's not something to be commanded today. But what we see in every single one of them, we see the justice of God. We see his care for his creation and especially those who are mistreated. It goes even beyond that to the care of their property. Now in this book of the covenant, it talks about what you do if you care about people and you love them and you love them, you look after the things that are theirs. It speaks about theft. It speaks about accidental damages. It's the only time where intentionally killing someone, there's no consequences. If someone breaked into their house at night time, and presumably the reason is because you can't identify them and go through the normal legal processes, that was the only time an exception was made. But in most cases, where somebody was caught taking someone else's property, the consequences was you had to pay them back twice. And if you can't pay back, to sell yourself into slavery. Now, all sorts of different damages addressed. What do you do if fire goes in on someone else's property? What happens if you do if your livestock eat the eat the grain off somebody else's property? All of these might seem minor things, but it's bringing people back to think of the value of the people who are around them. If something has has happened to your neighbour, you don't want to see them brought down anyway. You want to see them built up, and you want to make right. You don't want to see them suffer or lost in any sense. God's people are be a people who desire blessing in their neighbours, to see restoration, even when some of the implications for the people around them may have been accidents outside of your control. Now, I'm not too sure how this fits under the property section, but we see this principle even come out in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give his bride price for her and make her his wife. If a father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So he says, if they were to, to enter into a relationship like that, you pay the bride price, which was part of the culture, you pay a price to the family to, to secure that woman as your bride. But he says, you know what? Even if the father says, no way, never, ever, you still have to pay it. And the reason for that is you cannot demand that bride price for someone who has been in a relationship like this. So he says, you have created this situation. You are taking away from this, from this person's ability to ask for a bride price. Therefore, you pay it. Now, this is what we're seeing happening over and over again. God providing for those who have had something taken away from them making sure that no one is dragged down, calling the people to lift each other up and encourage one another. We have this picture of giving God which is worthy to him, but also that idea of, of Philippians 2, having a mind that thinks more highly of others than yourself. And no surprise, there's an extensive time spent speaking about the care for the poor and the needy. I was just chatting with James before to say that just last week, we just happened to be having a conversation about social justice and where it fits in things, and this is the passage we have this morning. But it comes up particularly in chapters 21, verses 21 to 28, and 23, 6 to 12, probably summarised well in these words here in chapter 22 here. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
You shall not mistreat your widow or fatherless child. If you do not mistreat them, sorry, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and their wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. See, God is saying these people, and we see it throughout the scriptures, that God cares for the widows and for the fatherless. He says, don't take advantage of people in their, their difficult situation. Find opportunity to be a blessing to them. Don't think just because they may not have family around them that, they, that they're insignificant and they're not of value. They're of value to me, he says. And you have to deal with me if you're going to, to work and act against them. Don't abuse their situation. Work for their benefit. He says, you know what? Even foreigners who come travelling through your land, work to be a blessing to them. Because after all, don't forget, you were, you were the same. You were a sojourner in, in, in Egypt for 430 years. Even within the Sabbath laws, we'll see how some of those had implications for the poor. That not only was it for the rest, for the land, and a, and a reminder of that creation mandate that God rested on the seventh day, but in, in the seventh year, to not to harvest your food, that it may be available to the poor and to the needy. Now, I'm sure if we were to write rules of what it means to make new civil laws, what it means to live as Christians in 2018 in Toowoomba, we'd probably write pretty different rules. I, I haven't have, had any problems with um, digging a pit and having people's animals fall in there or anything like that. But there's some elements in here that we still would want to apply, aren't they? The same idea is how do we rightly give worship to our God? How do we rightly express our love to our neighbours in such a way that expresses something of his character? That's still always going to be in there. But how do we deal with a passage like this? Well, the first thing I said from the beginning is don't overlook the context. Don't, don't forget that this is given to a people who are being formed as a nation for the first time. This is their civil laws for what, how they are to conduct themselves. This was their, their, their law book of how they are to conduct themselves as they go into the land. It's not written directly as to this is what you must do. Otherwise, every parent here probably wouldn't have any children because kids would never dishonour their parents, were they parents? There are some times when you can look at something and you can see the heart of the person who's given the law and you can see why they've given it. And you can be challenged and you can be moved by that. I learned something about our nation because I thought I'd start looking around for weird laws in Australia. Western Australia. If you are in possession of 50 kilos or something, you are in big trouble. Still, by law, it hasn't been changed. It's not drugs. It's not alcohol. Potatoes. You cannot be found in possession of 50 kilos of more or potatoes in Western Australia. Now, I didn't, I was lazy. I can't say I did all the research to figure it. There was probably good reasoning behind it. Now, you living in Toowoomba, if you love potatoes, you can have 50 kilos. If you've got 50 kids and you've got a lot of need for potatoes, go for gold, knock yourself out. Now, you could just say, well, it's got nothing to do with me. I love me potatoes, nothing's stopping me. I don't live in Western Australia. Or you could look at that same law and think, why would I want to do that? Like in our setting, we'd think, if I bought 50 kilos worth of potatoes, the shop's probably not going to have any potatoes. 
Now, if I, was, if I was more diligent and actually researched the reason for it, there probably would be a, a caring and concerning reason why that law exists. Same as we look at these laws, we see two key points, that God desires a worship of him and he desires that none of his people would do anything to the detriment of those who are around them, but would always seek to, to make amends even for things that are outside of our control. His character is unchanging. The things he doesn't like here, he still doesn't like them. It's not so all of a sudden he thinks it's okay to kill, bad to kill someone then changes his mind. The things that he's opposed to, he's still opposed to. Even though when you come to the New Testament, you might notice the penalties differ. It doesn't say if you, your child's dishonouring that you should uh, take their life. But if anything, the New Testament ups the ante in terms of how we are to conduct in our relationships with one another. Particularly on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says, now you've heard it said this way, let me tell you the full meaning of what that's all about. We're not just talking about do not murder, say even if you hate your brother and your sister, you've committed murder with them in their heart. So it actually, our conduct actually gets raised in the New Testament. But don't think, oh, God's gone soft you know, here he seemed really strong on it, now he's gone, you know, there's no death penalty for these things. What we see is that God is patient with his people. God is withholding what should be the natural judgment and consequences for our actions because he desires that all would come to repentance. He's not overlooking the consequences of sin. There is coming a day where every single person must give an account for every single thing that they've done. When we'll stand before our Creator, who gave us every single thing that we need, of whom we've turned our back on, rebelled against, yet while we deserve that consequence of death, Jesus came and He died that death on our behalf. All we do is we respond in repentance and faith. We respond in repentance saying, I deserve that. Now as I read these words, that's what I deserve when I've turned my back on the God who's given me, created me and given me everything I need. When we come to repentance and faith, Christ and all of his benefits are ours. For those of us who don't know him, the thought that there is a coming day when justice will be done, that it's not passed over, but it's God's gracious patience in the hope that some would come in repentance toward him. There is a passionate plea in in this and a reminder. If you're not reconciled to him, a day is coming where we will have to give accounts. Either we'll have to take the consequences ourselves or now we'll give thanks for his gracious provision in Christ that he bore our penalty on our behalf. So he took the consequences so that we don't have to. But for those of us who are reconciled to to God through what Christ has done, to ponder what is the relationship between our love for God and our love for our neighbours around us. We've seen in the structure of these commands, the very first priority, beginning and end, is our worship of God, loving him first, and how we treat one another as neighbours becomes the outworking of that. 
They're not separate things. There's not a love for God plus a love for other people. They are interconnected and interrelated. It is because of our love for God that we have love for his creation, people created in his image. It is by means of God that we can change to to actually love and to do the things we're called to do, including to love our enemies and pray for those who hate us. It's the vertical relationship that enables the horizontal. You need to know the character of God in order to express the character of God. You're not going to rightly relate to one another as God would have you to if you don't know how God has related with you. What I find convicting is this truth. Every failure in my horizontal relationships, that is, every failure in my relationships with people, is a reflection of a shortcoming in my relationship with God, without exception. Every shortcoming in our relationships with people is always a reflection of a shortcoming in our relationship with God. But every recognition of that shortcoming with God leads me to cry out and give him thanks that he has not dealt with me like that. That he's the one who's done everything to save me, provided all that I need, and that he upholds all of his wonderful character in his relationship with me. And it's not my job to keep that for me to feel special, that we might share it with those who naturally surround us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, when we read through uh, such an ancient and many ways foreign list of rules, it's quite overwhelming at times. Lord, even just to think of those two things Jesus spoke of, loving God and loving your neighbour as yourself, even that we, uh, we know that we don't do that either of those two perfectly. But Lord, you have not only called us to be your ambassadors in this, in this world, uh, Lord, you are working within us and to will within us to work according to your good pleasure. Oh Lord, help us to, to know you more deeply. Help us to have a hunger and a thirst for you that changes the way that we relate to everyone who is around us. And not just those to whom it's easy to, but recognising even the people we find most difficult are created in your image who by nature have turned against you, who by nature are, are, are heading towards, standing before you in their own sin but you have entrusted us with the good news of the gospel. Help us to love our neighbour as we share with them the the most precious thing of the gospel, but help us to love our neighbour in desiring what is best in all areas. We know this is not easy. We ask for the gracious work of your spirit in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. And just because I've said in the